farthest that I've ever run is 10 miles. And that may not be a big deal for many of you, but it was a big deal for me. To that point, I had run 5Ks, 4-milers, 10Ks, and, and those there don't really require a lot of advanced preparation, right, if you're at least in decent running shape. But for a 10-miler, at least for a guy like me, you need to plan a little bit. You need to probably eat the right foods beforehand. You need to drink the right things beforehand to hydrate properly. But, but the problem is I am not a very scientific runner. And so one crisp April morning as I was running up the George Washington Parkway from, from Mount Vernon to Old Town Alexandria, I discovered I hadn't eaten enough breakfast. I was mile eight, right? The race had begun great. My pace was really good for a slow guy like me. The weather was phenomenal. I felt incredible. And then mile eight, I got hungry, right? And I'm not talking about like a Winnie the Pooh rumbly in my tumbly. I am talking about a giant abyss opening in my belly, and I had nothing to throw into it. Now, mile eight, if you know the parkway, is that swampy part before you actually get to the town of Alexandria. I mean, there is literally nothing there. It's road. It's swamp. And so all I really want to do is go find an all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet. But I didn't really have a choice but to finish the run for two more miles because that was the fastest way to get to any kind of food. And so I ran on. I actually finished surprisingly well. And, and then I plowed through the free food like, you know, something out of Jurassic Park. And so the question is, when hunger hindered my run, what was it that helped me to finish well? And I would say it was two things. One, I knew that the, the ultimate solution to my problem, the cure for what was ailing me at that moment, lay at the finish line and nowhere in between. And I had a running buddy. So those two things, confidence in the destination and the joy of having a friend at my side kept me going, kept me on course when my run was hindered. Well, my friend's life is like a long-distance run. There will be unexpected challenges. There will be hindrances. There will be obstacles. There will be injuries along the way. But here is the good news. As Christians, we don't have to gut it out alone. Although, foolishly, we try quite often. Just like my little running story up the parkway, there are two things that consistently help us as Christians to run well for life if we choose to avail them. One is that through faith in Christ, we have total confidence in our destination and indeed know that the cure for all of our problems lies at the finish line. And the other is that we can experience the joy of lives filled with Christian love and service for one another because we can and should have running buddies through this life. This is Paul's message as he is writing his wayward friends in Galatia, in the letter to Galatians, chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. 
I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This passage is the transition from Paul's stern words of correction to his closing emphasis on living a life that is transformed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he is reminding his friends and he is reminding us of two great truths. The first, cling to the cross, that ultimate destination. And the second is to live, to love, and serve one another. First, we must cling to the cross. This has been Paul's dominant theme to this point in Galatians. Right There are many themes along the way, but it all keeps coming back to this so far to this point in the letter, and he concludes it here. He introduces this metaphor of running that I picked up on earlier in verse 7. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Well, as I observed earlier, Christian life is a marathon. It is not a sprint. Right? And we have to be cognizant of that. Quite often when we first come to the faith, we get excited. We're, we start running like crazy. And, and then we just kind of fall back into our old way of doing things. We have fallen into a sprint mentality rather than a marathon approach. And we need to realize that our life on earth is likely to last for years. And there will be both good and bad times in it. And so for this reason, we need to be careful to run well. To run by faith. To run with the power of the Holy Spirit. See, Paul's friends in Galatia started well under his teaching. They, they got it. They got excited. Clearly some good things were happening. But, but now, and it really hasn't been very long since he, since he first had, had been in Galatia preaching the gospel, but not much, much time has passed. Already the enticing words of, of false teachers who were claiming to them that they needed to do, to do more. They needed to be more Jewish in order to be saved, have gotten these Galatians off course. Right? Their run is, has been hindered. They are having trouble obeying the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul says in verse 8, this is not the work of the living God, the one who called them to life, who called them to freedom in Christ. He says this persuasion is not from him who calls you, Right? This is not God that they're listening to. When they, when they listen to these teachers, they are not hearing God's voice speak. Instead, they are hearing the adversary, the devil, who desperately wants Christians to run off course, who desperately wants us to be ineffective and exhausted and, and burned out by legalism and blind, frustrating rule following. And so he warns them and us, by extension in verse 9, of the power of false teaching. And the danger of having even the slightest confusion about what it is we believe. And so this is really why Paul has been so very forceful in his language through, throughout the first four chapters of Galatians. And this is why we need to be so very vigilant. He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And here, Paul switches his metaphor. He's given a, a sports metaphor, right? Many of us like that. And now he's moving into a baking metaphor. It speaks to different folks. 
And the point is that if you were a reader 2,000 years ago, when you needed your dough to rise, you didn't go down to Giant and pick up dry yeast. It just didn't exist in that form. You didn't have baking powder. You didn't have baking soda. So what you needed in order to make your bread good, anything other than a cracker, is a little bit of dough that was already full of yeast. That's the leaven that Paul is referring to. And you would work that little bit of leaven, that little bit of, of dough that, that has yeast in it, into this massive lump of fresh dough. And that, that tiny amount of invisible yeast that you cannot distinguish from the rest of the dough would go to work. All right, and we know what it does, right? This, this little bit of leaven would essentially infect everything around it with yeast. It would multiply. It would cause it all to rise. Doesn't take much, just a little leaven to make the whole lump into nice bread dough to make good bread. This is the power of a little bit of false teaching in the church, only not to make tasty bread, but to pull Christians off course. It doesn't take a lot to draw individual Christians or even entire churches away from the gospel and back to trying to save ourselves, improve our spiritual condition through hard work and good, good efforts and, and moralism and legalism. And this is why we have to be constantly vigilant about what we preach and what we teach and what we listen to and what we read as believers in Jesus Christ. Because a little false gospel compounds again and again like that little bit of yeast to destroy our effectiveness for God. But nonetheless, Paul has a note of encouragement here. He is confident for his friends in verse 10, right? He doesn't say that he's confident in them. But he is confident for them because of the one who's going to be watching over them. He says he is confident they're going to heed his warnings and get back on course. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And this, my friends, is why we must cling to the cross all our days. See, the problem in Galatia was that a group of teachers were convincing new believers that they needed to do more personally in order for the cross of Christ to make a difference in their life. I said in on the, the World Religions course today, the Comparative Religions Sunday School, and we were talking about exactly this, and one of the issues was in Mormonism, right? The cross is not that significant. They don't cling to the cross of Christ, right? The threat from 2,000 years ago is just as true today, right? And when we think that we have to do more to matter, that is not clinging to the cross of Christ. That is about clinging to ourselves, clinging to our own good behaviors and our hard work and our self-discipline. And the interesting thing is apparently Paul is actually being accused of doing the very same thing. But as he says in verse 11, that's obviously not true, because if he was, the Jews wouldn't be persecuting him. If he was just a guy teaching that Christianity was some weird version of Judaism. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. This, this we come now to the real issue, the offense of the cross. Because as Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The true good news of Jesus Christ is the offense of the cross. 
That salvation didn't come to the good or to the great or to the holy or the self-righteous or the wealthy or the educated. That it didn't come to people who earned it because nobody can earn it. Right? The offense is that nobody can be good enough and pure enough and holy enough and righteous enough all the time to enter the presence of a God who is perfectly good and pure and holy and righteous all the time. Nobody can work their way into heaven because God is too good for us. And, and the sooner we realize this, the sooner we can stop exhausting ourselves, stressing ourselves and discouraging ourselves by trying over and over and over again to be a better person in our own strength, only to disappoint ourselves and our loved ones by falling back into the same old bad habits again and again and again. See, God in his perfect knowledge and his perfect wisdom and his enormous love and mercy knew we'd never be able to reach him on our own or be able to relate to him amidst our own sin and failure. And so he prepared a way for us to be reconciled with him despite our rebellion and despite our our mistakes and our sins and our shortcoming. And it doesn't require us to do anything. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, stepped into our world and He took on a human nature and He did everything that needed to be done to open the way to salvation for those who follow Him. Through His perfect life and His willing death on the cross, Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, paid the penalty for your sin and my sin and the sin of every person around you. And in His abundant grace, He wiped our slates clean. We owe nothing more to God than our faith and obedience to Christ. For by faith we are saved, we are declared righteous, we are set free from the inevitability of death and eternal separation from the God who loves us and made us to be in relationship with Him despite our unworthiness and personal failures. This is the love of God. This is the good news of the cross, but it's also the offense of the cross. Because it's too simple, right? We always want things that are complicated. We want things that we can control, and the cross is completely out of our control. And so it will always be an unpopular message. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 1.23, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. And that, that idea of stumbling block is scandal, where we get our word scandal, right? It is offense. This is the offense of the cross. Because faith in Christ alone and resting in the sufficiency of Jesus' work is too simple for the Jews who wanted to see miracles and really wanted rules to follow and rituals to perform. And the cross was too humiliating for Romans because they were used to seeking power and doing things in their own strength as a people And so for them, they couldn't accept that salvation lies not in personal strength and self-discipline, but in a God-man who was beaten and whipped and mocked and stripped naked and nailed to a cross in the middle of nowhere in Israel. But that's the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's really, really good news, right? Because your struggles and your failures... God forgives them because of the cross. Your moments of weakness and humiliation, God forgives them and wipes them clean because of the cross. 
your hurts and the hurts that you've inflicted on others. God wipes them away. When we turn from our sin, when we turn from our bitterness or our anger and our suffering, and we cling to the cross of Christ. And 1 John 1, 9 comforts us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there's nothing more to add to that. This is why Paul exclaims about those who wanted to add just a little trimming in order to be saved, that they should just cut everything off. In verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now this sounds extreme. But in all likelihood, he's actually making two points that would be very meaningful based on the personal background of the readers, depending on which background they came from, right? If they, those in Galatia used to be pagans, Paul is evoking the local pagan priests of Sibeli who really did castrate themselves. And the point that he's making then is he is saying that these false teachers are like pagan priests who are leading you away from God and back into trying to save yourselves. But if it's for those readers who used to be Jews, he is describing an act that would utterly disqualify the teachers from entering into God's presence, per Deuteronomy 23.1. And so he's reminding his friends that these false teachers disqualify them from the presence of God. They lead them away from God, even though they are claiming to draw them towards God. And this extreme wish is, I think, taking us back to the very beginning of the letter where Paul calls down the curse of God on all who teach a false gospel. Compared to the curse of God, verse 12 is small potatoes. His friends had started to run well, but they were stumbling and they were confused. And what did they need to do? Cling to the cross. My friends, as you travel through life and you find yourself stumbling and confused and, and life becomes overwhelming and the cacophony of voices speaking into your life offering supposed spiritual advice is confusing you and, and leading you away from the simplicity of the good news, what do you need to do? Cling to the cross. It's that simple. Let the cross guide you as you run the race of a lifetime remembering that your ultimate destination is in eternity. The solution for those pains, the solution for that suffering, for that grief that you're experiencing is in the loving embrace of God, and we only get there through the cross. This, in fact, is why we will be gathering around the Lord's table in just a few minutes to remember what Jesus did for us at the cross and that we need nothing more than to put faith in him. And then Paul goes on to describe how to conduct ourselves while we're running our race. And the point is, we cannot run in isolation, us against the world, because that is a race that is doomed to failure, and because it gets easier and easier for us to, to run off course. And, and there are lots of Christians in our society today who say, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to gather with other believers. I don't need to do Bible study. I can worship God anywhere. And you're right, you can worship God anywhere but I don't think I've met any of those who make that claim who I don't see clear evidence that they've run off course because they do not get together with other believers as they're commanded in Scripture to do so that we can help each other 
stay on course. You see, in Christ, there's a better way to run that is far superior to any other. A mandate that is both our duty and our source of lifelong joy and encouragement as we run. Again, we talked about the destination, but there is joy in this journey as we run in community because we are to run in community within the church. We are to run alongside others, helping one another. We need to be loving, living to love and serve one another. Mutual love and service is the foundation of life and community in Christ. It is a source of joy. It gives us meaning. It gives us hope in a world that, let's face it, is increasingly hopeless. And for several weeks, we've been talking about the freedom that we have received through Christ, freedom from death, freedom from sin, freedom from the rules and the restrictions and the rituals of legalistic systems of self-salvation. But in verse 13, Paul makes clear that our freedom has a purpose, and that is to love and serve others. For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Our freedom is our calling. Our freedom, as we have talked about for weeks, should be our daily delight. But Christ didn't die for us to waste that freedom chasing after earthly delights and lusts. As we're going to be talking about more next week as the passage progresses, Christ didn't go to the cross just to let us indulge our bodies and our minds in sin and selfish abuse of others or ourselves. All right, in verses 19 through 21, which again we'll be talking about more next week, Paul says our freedom is not for us to engage in sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We are free, but we aren't free to sin ever. We are free to voluntarily submit to Christ's lordship over our life, to, to choose to live in a way that joyfully serves and loves one another. Christ didn't die for us to show up on Sunday morning, feel good, and then ignore each other for the rest of the week. Right? Christ died for us to be a family of believers, brothers and sisters, living life together in love and mutual care and support. Christ set us free so that we could share his mindset and his priorities that we see described in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul emphasizes in verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in Matthew 22, Jesus famously said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Right? Very simple. Love God love our neighbors. That's the great commandment. But the interesting thing is that Paul here simplifies it further 
Because as 1 John 3.10 explains, if you don't love your brother, you don't really love God. And that is a challenging message that some of us need to process. Right? If we are people who are continually angry at other Christians, at people in our lives, there's a problem with our relationship with God too. John says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's pretty stark. We must love our neighbors. This is true for us individually. It is true for us as a church. As a church, we need to be concretely and meaningfully loving our neighbors, loving Rockledge, loving Westminster, loving Thousand Oaks, loving River Ridge, loving our neighbors off Harbor Drive. We need to be deeply invested in our community, deeply involved as a church day in and day out. And that has not been our strength in recent years. We need to recognize that and then move forward in making it a strength. This is what it means to be a lighthouse at the corner of Clipper and Mariner. That's our vision as a church. This is what it means that we are actively shining the light and the love of Jesus Christ into all corners and the nooks and crannies of our neighborhood. This is what it means for us to be salt, adding flavor to and preserving our neighborhood. We need to do better at it. We need to become more consistent at it. In seven weeks, we have a golden opportunity to, to take a step in this direction, to deepen our relationships with our neighbors, by loving them. In seven weeks, we're going to spend the entire weekend from Friday evening, September 21st, to Sunday evening, September 23rd, loving our neighbors. I am praying and I am calling on every one of you to get involved in this. doesn't matter who you are, what your situation is, what your gifts or passions or abilities might be. There are ways for you to get involved in reaching out and welcoming in our neighbors. We're going to do home improvement and community beautification projects. We're going to serve the elementary school. We are going to do sports and games and stories for children and youth. We'll serve neighborhood organizations and institutions, and we're going to invite our neighbors to come alongside us as we do. We're going to pray diligently for our neighbors, for Rockledge, for Westminster, for homes and families and businesses, for God's kingdom and for the advance of the gospel. We're going to pray on the sidewalks, and we're going to pray in the sanctuary. We're going to open an afternoon coffee house for, for conversation and questions. Host a community barbecue, a community movie, a community dinner party, and all with one mission, to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ to our neighbors of all races and faiths and lifestyles and nationalities to form relationships for the gospel. We love our neighbors, and so I invite and encourage and exhort every single one of you, man, woman, and child, to sign up. Sign up today. Commit yourself to loving our neighbors. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So I actually want you to take a minute and open up our monthly newsletter. Yes, that's why the bulletin is the size of a phone book. It's the once a month newsletter. And we're headed into fall and we have a lot of things going on. But at the middle of it is love our neighbors. Details, schedules, information, ways to sign up. Take time to really look through this, to think about where you are called to serve. 
and then sign up. Commit immediately. Don't wait around, right? Don't, don't say, I'll get around to signing up. Sign up. See, we need the commitment as soon as possible so that we can plan how much food to prepare, how many shirts to buy, what kind of teams can we form, how many teams are we able to form to love our neighbors. We need kitchen helpers, and we need decorators, and we need gardeners, and we need handymen and handywomen and inviters and prayers and coffeehouse theologians and hosts and welcomers and greeters and storytellers and assistants and cleaners and sports lovers and techno geeks and crafters and more and more and more. You name it, there is a place for you. This is a great opportunity to reach out and welcome in. This is about living our vision in a very real way for 48 hours and to change the way we think about our neighborhood and to change the way our neighborhood thinks about us as we begin the serious day-in, day-out business of being the lighthouse. Connecting deeply with our neighborhood is at the heart of God's vision for Lake Ridge Baptist Church. I want each person here to be a part of making this weekend a successful step towards those deepening relationships with our nearest neighbors. Because I guarantee you there is a place for you on this mission team. We must be faithful to love our neighbors. Please pray with me. Lord God, as we prepare to gather around your table, we marvel at these truths that Paul has highlighted. Father, we, I pray that you'll help each of us to cling to the cross. That as we are coming together and preparing to remember exactly what took place at the cross, that we will not lose sight of, of the cross and what Jesus did there as he sacrificed his body and shed his blood to establish a new covenant, to establish a path to salvation, to establish freedom and hope and meaning in our lives today in the certainty of an eternity in your presence tomorrow. And Lord, I pray if there are any here who have struggled with, with just getting you know, drawn a little off course by all the voices at work in our society, that you would use this time to just bring them back to the foot of the cross, Lord. And so, Lord, I just want to offer a, a quiet moment where anyone who wants to, to just confess anything to you and grab a hold of the cross so we can do that. And I just pray that you'll hear our prayers now.